Hello, and welcome to the Don't Shop on Tuesdays podcast. We're your hosts, Jacob and Barry, joined by Maxwell Hope. Hi, everyone. This is Barry, and I am so honored and excited to have Chrissy Holt here with us today. She'll be talking. She's a mother and an activist and my friend, I'm proud to say, and she'll be talking about her journey fighting for Medicare for All and other related issues. And Chrissy, if you don't mind, without, without you know, embarrassing or, or telling stories that you don't want to, what it was like with your son and why you became interested in health care and, and health coverage. Yeah. So thanks, Barry and Jacob, for having me today. I really appreciate the opportunity. So, you know, it started about 28 years ago in May. My son was born uninsurable with severe hemophilia A. And as a new young mom, you don't really know what that means. I mean, I grew up white, middle class. My parents worked for the government. I didn't even know, honestly, into my own just being naive, that that was even possible, that somebody could be born with a chronic condition that was new to our family and that my son would then have been uninsurable. So in that moment, you learn really quick the public policy is going to affect your everyday life. And prior to that, you know, I just didn't pay that much attention in, in quite honesty. I didn't need to. You know, we, I didn't need to. And so I didn't. So my family, I would say over the last 30, 40 years, we've been hugely affected by two main diseases of alcoholism and hemophilia. And it's turned into volunteer work for me. It's not life work because I needed to have insurance. And for a long time, I was a single mom. And so I needed to have good insurance to cover my son. You know, as a mother, it's just so scary to have, to give birth, to have this child, and then have this hanging over you. And but it, it pushed you into activism, and I hate burying the lead. Can you just tell us where he is today, and then we'll go back to all that you have done since then? Oh, yeah. Okay. So it is, there is a happy ending yes. to this. Of course, not from insurance perspective and not for coverage and that sort of thing. But he is working in New York City, does have great health insurance, and, you know, we're super proud of him. He has a master's graduated from the University of Maryland, and then went on to do a master's at University of Texas, Austin in economics. And he, part of his research in Austin in particular was around looking at the Medicaid structure and that if you lifted the poverty cap on that just a little bit, then the, the folks would earn more money. The reality is a lot of people under-earned, and we learn this in our hemophilia community, particularly here in Maryland, that when you have medical expenses like you do with hemophilia, our medication costs $30,000 a month. It's $2,000 a dose every other day. That's just for maintenance. That's just, you know, so that you don't bleed to death. So let me even back up because we're probably all remembering high school, you know, 10th grade biology class. Hemophilia is a genetic bleeding disorder. We have, you know, 13 clotting factors. He is missing factor eight. So 9, 10, 11, 12 don't kick in when there is a bleed. In general, hemophiliacs will die from cranial bleeds, spontaneous bleeds into the brain. So when you infuse factor eight, you give the body what it doesn't have, 
then you will not bleed out. But the medicine only lasts for 48 hours. So then, of course, our hemophilia community was killed by AIDS, right? So we were the first community to come out. And that was the first, and this before my time and, and two generations before Colin, where we got the first compassionate bill in Congress. You know, they paid the hemophilia families who had lost their loved ones from dirty blood, you know, $150,000, you know, and that really led the way for the National Hemophilia Foundation. Not only is the hemophilia community responsible for cleaning up the blood supply, but we realized like the power of coming together. Chrissy and her son also wanted to add that it is thanks to the LGBTQIA plus community as allies that also help to clean up the blood supply from AIDS. You know, as a patient advocacy group and away we went. And, you know, the generation, so it's two generations above Colin, you know, so that community is in a large part dead. Then there's the hep C community, right? So they clean the blood supply of AIDS, but they left hep C in it. And so my son is first generation that's using this, what's called recombinant product to replace the factor that's missing. So communities aren't really sure what to do with, you know, a hemophiliac that actually can travel, right? Like I was relocated to Australia for work for five months and the literally the health minister of Australia would not approve his visa because they didn't want a hemophiliac because they didn't want him using the healthcare system. I had to prove to them I was traveling with $80,000 worth of medication. I had to tell the health minister of Australia that my son would not be using his system. That didn't quite happen. My son did get a bleed. We had to use it. Chrissy mentions John Hopkins Hospital, but she means to say Georgetown Hospital. Her experiences are filled with countless hospitals, and we thank her for her advocacy. You know, we got to email back to Hopkins, and Hopkins, you know, confirmed that we were getting great treatment, which I knew we were and we would get. And believe me, if I could have migrated to a country that had socialized medicine, I would have done it a long time ago. Because it's been an epic battle in this country every step of the way to get him the medication that he needs when he needs it. We literally... Not to mention yeah. the overarching fear that you have as a mother with him having this condition, and then you have to deal with, with, with health insurance and medicines. And you told me once that within, your, within this community, a lot of parents, primarily women, primarily mothers, impoverish themselves to get on Medicaid so they could take care of their children. Yes. And so, you know, that really leads into, and we all know that our healthcare system is completely racist. And you can see that inside the Maryland community. We have about, I haven't checked the numbers recently, it's anywhere from 350 to 400 hemophiliacs in the state of Maryland. And what happens is we have federal funded hemophilia treatment centers. And so families tend to migrate around and live around these treatment centers. There's one here in Hopkins, and there's one at Children's Hospital in Washington, D.C. So at the time when Colin was born in Virginia, he was uninsurable. We moved to Maryland, and then we spent, I spent lots of time because, of course, the healthcare industry wanted to scramble the laws for healthcare and who would cover what. So there's certain things the feds cover. There's certain things that the states cover. And we worked for a long time with Mike Bush and other leaders in Maryland to make sure that we had the mandates for coverage inside the state of Maryland, regardless of what was going on at the federal level. So there, 
essentially what we created were safe places for him. There's like safe hemophilia states. Like, and I can tell you which ones they are because I worked on those mandates for a long time, many years ago. There's, you know, Medicaid. Medicaid, yes, there are, and you'll see it in our own community here in Maryland. A lot of our African-American families are on Medicaid, that they will lower themselves to the poverty level to make sure that their kids can have the coverage of the $30,000 a month in medication that they need. The other step is that the mother, like you said, and a lot of our men don't make it. I mean, Colin's father died from alcoholism, right? So a lot of men abandon families inside chronic illnesses. And that story is over and over and over again, just like Colin's dad. So, you know, these women, and I was working on a study with Bear, and I didn't realize I was going to be like one of the oldest moms in the room. Uh, what is Bear? Bear, sorry, is one of the manufacturers of our medication. And we were doing a study on the stress level of the mom affects the outcome of the child. And if the mom is super stressed out and can't infuse their son, then the son's going to have more bleeds and he's going to have terrible outcomes. So we were trying to figure out, you know, what do we do with these moms to help them to infuse their son? And, and I'll define infusion. And infusion is, you know, you literally have to set up an IV. It's a bleeding disorder. So we have to go into the veins. Like you have to get the vein. Colin for 10 years had a port. So I had to use sterile conditions every other day. It would take me 45 minutes before I go to work to access Colin's port. And, and Colin was one of the first kids in America to get a port because he was one of the first kids in America to be on prophylaxis, which was the every other day, $30,000, right? And Colin is really like first generation, like clean kid, right? He doesn't have AIDS. He doesn't have hep C. He, he's not crippled from hemophilia. Hemophilia is also very crippling in that they bleed into joints and they bleed into soft tissues and you get target joints. And, you know, he doesn't have any of that, you know? And it's because we worked so hard to make sure that he always had his factor levels. But you know, there's no doubt he had bleeds. There's no doubt that I lived in emergency rooms. There's no doubt that these things happened. Most recently, a friend of mine, and I too have hemophilia. We used to say we're symptomatic carriers, but I have hemophilia. It's just a milder form because okay. it's carried back to biology class. It's on the recessive X. And I have two X's in my chromosomes, so the other X helped make it up. But a friend of mine who has hemophilia also was just in Johns Hopkins, just having a bleed. But because women don't bleed at the, you know, were mild and not the severity that, you know, my son was severe, who, you know, she couldn't get treatment. She couldn't get access to the hemophilia treatment center. She was told she couldn't get factor. I mean, she literally has the disease, but yet we're still discriminated even inside our own community because it all comes down to insurance. Of, of course it does. And it comes back to capitalism and insurance companies making money. Sorry if I'm going on a rant here. I always say that that conservatism is, I've got mine, you can die. You know, I don't have hemophilia. Sorry about your problems. And it sounds like you did amazing work to move the whole community forward. You know, my brother had a friend in high school that was a hemophilia. Of course, he couldn't do anything. They wouldn't let him play soccer. They wouldn't let him do anything. They wouldn't let him do anything. I need to pause you on that, though, Barry. It's not me. <laughs> like, it was... You know, I mean, you know, we have, there's the national chapter. And mm -hmm. when we first came into community, 
it was grassroots and they were on the ground and they were doing it. But unfortunately, like so many national associations, they have been completely bought out by pharma. So they're literally doing the bidding for pharma. And a great example of that was during the pandemic when the, the, the I can't remember the name of the bill, it was one of the first bills that was coming out and they were you know, going to bail out the insurance companies or they were going to bail out the patients and help pay the patient bills. And what happened was the 26 of the major patient national associations, hemophilia, cystic fibrosis, lungs, heart, cancer, all of them, all bought by pharma, all went to Congress and said, we support insurance. And so then people like Congressman Sarbanes and, and Fuma and everybody here in Maryland could say, well, all the patients, it represents like 28 million patients. They all agree with bailing out insurance companies. So, of course, I went to National Hemophilia and said, when was I consulted on that vote? You don't represent patients when you're voting on the side of insurance. You know, we want we want Medicare for all. We want our bills to be covered. We're we're. We didn't, it's not like we went to the tree and picked hemophilia. We were born with this. I mean, so it's I'll, just been a, but it's not me. There, there's well, a I'm lot gonna, of families. I'm going to have to disagree with you slightly because one person makes a huge difference. And I'm, I'm not saying you did this solely by yourself, right. that you had all of it on your back yourself, but one person can motivate and articulate and, leg, you know, and, 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 and try to, demand differences mm -hmm. and it so you know i'm i'm a buddhist and in our practice we say one person can change the the entire environment so you played let's say you played a pivotal role wow. or a co you know your your actions were cogent and you you had unfortunately a, a, a front row seat to see what the, the the struggles that families have and there's hemophilia there's there's childhood cancer there's there's children that are born with, with heart problems and there's there's so many things, and we, we, we need advocates. We are not a partisan group, but I was an elected Bernie Sanders delegate, and I went to Philadelphia in 2016, and the delegates for the other candidate would come up to me and say, oh, you want Medicare for all? That's so cute. Do you want sprinkles on your unicorn? As if every other major developed country doesn't have some form of coverage for their citizens. Yeah. So... Barry, I think, and I can't speak for those other countries, except that they have a collective representation and we're still very individualized here in America because of capitalism, right? But what I have found in this journey of Medicare for All is that it's just completely based on racism here in America and that we can't, we're not going to get there until we all, and until we all get to a position that we want that for other people. Like, I want you to have the freedom from, you know, the burden of this disease that you have. And I don't have a death wish for somebody that is a different color or different than me. And I can't tell you how many white people are just so afraid that if the, if we let go of the insurance company, that they're going to lose something and access to care. And that if we opened it up and allowed black people from the Medicaid community, the poor people from Medicaid, if we let them into this, you know, universe of, you know, easy access to health care, that somehow they won't get enough. And people will say to me, well, you know, Chrissy, they 
They wait in line over in Europe. They wait in line. And I'm like, you can't get a doctor's appointment because you want one in America, right? Like, you don't just magically say, I want to get a new knee, and all of a sudden you can go get that. Like, you have to wait in line right now in America. Anyway, Bernie Sanders, there's so many studies. At this point, if people don't know what Medicare for All is, if they don't know the corruption, if they don't understand the, the blatant discrimination the inhumane treatment of insurance companies and now Medicaid, because thanks to Hogan, Hogan sold our Maryland Medicaid system to United Health. Biden's in the process of privatizing Medicare, right. right, to United Health. Like if these leaders don't know and they're not paying attention to the the bias numbers of the COVID deaths, you know, more black people die proportionally from COVID than white people. Like there's no data. There's no more talking. At my point, and, and you know this just from an advocacy perspective from me and my, boy, my viewpoint right now, I'm burned out because I can't make people care. If you literally don't care, you've listened to the numbers, you've listened to the stories, you're actively deciding to not know what Medicare for All is, then I can't do that for you. And I'm not going to keep doing it. I'm just going to make an interjection. I'm not a healthcare advocate, but I am a strategist. And I think it's directed at poor people as well. It's, yes, overwhelmingly racist, but you have a lot of people of all colors and all races on Medicaid. And it's also profit. That I mean, there's so many factors involved. I don't think racism, of course, is there. But these companies are here to make a profit. And it's easy to find vulnerable communities and pit them against each other. And then the only goal is to make, make more and more money. Yeah, I mean, Barry, it's all connected. Capitalism demands that we have poor people. So, I mean, it's all part of the structure. So in my estimation, we're like two campaign cycles out where we could probably get Medicare for all. And the reason I say that is, my son's generation and the generation after that, they have been the victims of the policies that have crippled. They've watched their parents be crippled under these capitalistic policies, right? And they, too, are carrying the burden of that. You know, Colin's generation has the student debt. Colin's generation has this unbelievable, overwhelming problem with healthcare. Like he had, he went, Johns Hopkins is the adult hemophilia treatment center run by MedStar. And this is before he moved to Texas. So there's like some other stories in here. MedStar. So the hemophilia treatment center demanded that he had this blood work up to quote, prove he has a chronic illness, right? So every year he's got to go in, he has to prove he has a chronic illness that charges anywhere from 350 to $400,000 a year. And that, and, and so, okay, I guess I have to do that. So then they hit him with a $2,000 bill over and over. And he's like, why do I have to pay this bill? Why do I have to pay this bill? And I said to him, I go, Colin, like, unfortunately, welcome to my world. I've been doing this for decades for you. And I do it on company time. Because if they decide that health insurance must be tied to employment as a way to discriminate against poor people and black people, then I will do this work of getting my reimbursements and fighting with insurance companies and fighting with hospitals on company time. And, you know, so that's my little big, mm -hmm. like, don't shop on Tuesdays, mm -hmm. right? Against 
you know, capitalism, because you don't have to hide in your cube that you're fighting with your insurance company. We should literally stop working as hard and spend that time on companies and start chipping away at their profitability on that. You know, my doctor said his life, his offices would be so much simpler with Medicare. Medicare, Medicare for all. Oh, absolutely. I mean, doctors want it. Patients want it. My next door neighbor was from Peru. They have it in Peru. You know, his, his father unfortunately got COVID. It was covered. He was, you know, his hospitalization was covered. I, as I said, I'm, I'm not an advocate of specifically here. I've come back to believe in that we all have to unite, you know, the healthcare advocates, LGBTQ, immigrant, because we're not winning by ourselves. And we'll, we'll get into that later. But it just all comes down to show me the money, follow the money. And you're right. Capitalism meet, needs, needs poor people. They need, they need poor people to support the, the hierarchy. It's, it's crazy. And now we have people that can, they're their own countries. They can shoot themselves into space. They, you know, they have their own coinage. And, you know, I, I, I'm not a fan of our previous governor. And a lot of people came to me. I said, he has cancer charisma. They go, oh, you know, he had cancer and he cured it. I said, on our time and our dime, you know, he was And going. then he sold Medicaid. And when he sold Medicaid, Medicaid, you don't have to be a provider to be paid by Medicaid. Like, you, you don't have to do that. And so during COVID, they shut down clinics for poor people in the middle of COVID. Absolutely. They laid people off. And Hogan watched it happen, but not just Hogan. The Maryland Democratic Party watched it happen as well. And so until, again, we deal with the core problem of racism, not only in this state, but in this country, but until we have legit reforms, right, in terms of getting dark money out. I mean, Donna Edwards would have been amazing in Congress for us. Again, we have 10 men representing us in the state of Maryland. You know, Maryland Democratic Party didn't help her at all when dark money came into the state and took over with Glenn Ivey. You know, there's, it's not just Republicans. It's not just capitalists. It's the two-party system that's lifting this up. Why are we still being governed by 80-year-old white men? I mean, they're just not even relevant anymore. They don't understand. And I also, you know, my question back to those guys are, how did you get so rich? When you have been, what, Biden, Right? How does he have a $2 million beach house when all he has done has been in Congress and made $100,000 every year? I've made more than $100,000 for many years. I don't have a $2 million beach house because of all the insider trading from all of the no, you know, they, there's just so much corruption inside the system and that it's just, you know, impossible at this point until we can get more, I personally think, Black women in office at all levels of office. And I'm happy to work on those campaigns over and over again. If Nina Turner run for, runs for office, I probably will quit my job and, sure. and start running her campaign here. Our Donna Speaking, Edwards, speaking yes. of dark money coming in at the very end when she was running for Congress, I mean, just, just hordes of it. I mean, you know, everything's up. Again, show me the money and I re you can the ask. The Democratic Party didn't do anything oh, for her. I mean, corru and, and corruption, corruption doesn't uh, know party. Corruption doesn't know party. Right. And you can ask Jacob and Maxwell. I occasionally repeat myself, but I always say, I've got mine, you can die, is emblematic of what people in power, of the wealthy people, what, what establishment feels. And that 
that, I mean, Hogan, Hogan tried to block federal unemployment money for the most vulnerable citizens in Maryland. For me, I got laid off from the Walt Disney Company. I was like, what is going on? I literally had a rally. And we came down to Baltimore going, wait, we want our money. I've paid my entire life into the Maryland employment and insurance. And I need it for the first time in my entire life in the middle of a global pandemic. And I can't figure it out. And the entire Maryland State General Assembly, all of them turn into admins because our our state government has been so raped of money and people that they are riddled just completely ineffective. I mean, it's just he, outrageous. He started the agencies. He, he spent $400,000 of our money to go to a private law firm to block those benefits. Not to mention the fact everyone said, oh, he, I, we shouldn't go over on the Hogan tangent, but hello, that he imported masks from South Korea, where his wife is from, just coincidence. No, Tess. And, and they didn't work. And they didn't work. And they would cost more money. He's going to run for president. Uh oh, oh, oh. I mean, that's why I'm like, we're two cycles away. I just want to. Unsuccessfully run for president. That's right. He's going to run for president. One digit support. Really quickly, I I was introduced to Chrissy over Zoom when she took an office, and I cold called her, and I said, Jacob and I started this, this protest movement, Don't Jump on Tuesday uniting all sorts of activists all over the country. And you said, I love it. I'm on board. Can you just give us a quick rundown of your experience or your thoughts or you're always wearing your shirt? Or- I love my shirt. I live in Annapolis, Maryland. I ride my bike all the time with my shirt. <laughs> and we talk about it all the time and I do other business cards. It makes so much sense because I... You know, don't shop on Tuesdays, and and it's your language that I've internalized. You know, it's an elegant, nonviolent boycott that we can actually stand for what we want to stand. And I don't have to convince you that healthcare is more important than climate. I can't tell you how many times I've had that debate. I'm like, I don't need to debate you on that. They're both shitty, right? Like, stop, right? But and they're both gonna kill us. And which one's gonna kill us first? I don't know. It doesn't freaking matter. Right. So at some point, we just have to stop and find our power and find our control. And, you know, I loved what you said in your first broadcast where it was in your first podcast, you know, a couple of weeks ago, where it does make you pause on Tuesday. You know, my husband and I would be like, oh, wait, we're not going to go out to dinner. We're not going to. No, it's Tuesday. And so I do. I I. I'm more conscientious about it. I'm not perfect, but progress is better than perfection. But we do, and I have the business cards. And, you know, I was out in Utah with one of our kids. And, you know, we were we were in a shop and we were talking about it. It might have been a Tuesday. And I was like, well, I don't buy anything on Tuesday. Can you hold it? I'll come back tomorrow. Why won't you buy anything on Tuesday? Okay, well, this is the reason why. I ended up giving them one of your cards. And they took a picture and they put it out there. And I was like, you know, make sure that you, you know, tell people about it. And I, I'm finding too that young people are super enthusiastic about this. They 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 get it immediately. They want to do it. They're watching these one-off strikes. I mean, there's just to what end? You know, one little strike one month ago. Who cares? I mean, you know, my God, you're you're safe. You're protected. You could do it loudly. You could do it quietly. And 
I'm stealing a word from Jacob, siloed. You know, activists have been siloed mm -hmm. and not to mention pitted against each other. And now every Tuesday you're aligned with people in Idaho and Maine and California and both coasts in the middle of the country in Oklahoma and in Mississippi. And we're all united and we're for the Uber generation. You're doing you're not doing something. Mm -hmm. you're, you're still focused on your mission. You're still focused on what you need to do. You don't have to have the conversations like you're talking about. Oh, my issue is more important than your issue. You do you. You fight for this, and together, in aggregate, safely, elegantly, we will not chop, and we will show the establishment. I've got mine, you can die. That establishment, that we have more collective and aggregate power, money, and heft. Amen. I'm a slight fan of Don't Chop on Tuesday. Me too. <laughs> yeah, that was a fantastic conversation, you know. I loved being witness to it and, you know, learning so much more about Chrissy. I've, you know, obviously volunteered and helped out a lot with various projects, mm -hmm. but it's just always great to learn more about people's stories and it's inspiring, you know. So once again, we want to thank you for all that you're already doing out there and we look forward to you joining us in Don't Shop on Tuesday. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at don'tshoponTuesday at gmail.com. You can find out more about the movement at don'tshoponTuesday.com. You can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash don'tshoponTuesday. And you can follow our Instagram at don'tshoponTuesday. I just wanted to ask, Chris, you mentioned, especially somewhat surprisingly, with your experience when you went over to Australia mm -hmm. and sort of how they didn't want to allow your son to come in because they didn't want to have to take on the burden in their own healthcare system. Presumably that's in part because they're like, they presumably treat their own citizens with hemophilia well. In, in countries that have socialized healthcare, what is the sort of coverage and experience like as opposed to our own, you know, sort of insurance-based, highly sort of capital and predatory experience? Right. So my understanding is that, yes, they take care of their own. Right. So we hadn't paid enough taxes into the system to be able to take those services back out. That's that. Right. Usually we're covered on a three month visa, but I was there on a work five month visa. So it changed the rules to the game. And so, yes, they cover their they cover their folks because unlike addiction, hemophiliacs don't die. They just get super expensive, meaning they will spend more time in hospitals. They will need more factor they will be less productive citizens. And that was my argument back in the day with Governor Ehrlich, right, when they wanted to privatize at Blue Cross Blue Shield. And I became, you know, I was a PR nightmare for Blue Cross Blue Shield because they were like, for, you know, you can, you, you have a case study here that shows, right, that a hemophiliac is never going to pay into the system what they need out of the system. And which is why insurance is supposed to work, right? Where everybody pays in and then the sick folks get access to it. The counter, the pharmaceutical national foundations, American system on why aren't you marching for Medicare for all hemophiliacs, right? How come I can't get the National Hemophilia Foundation to get behind mm -hmm. Bernie Sanders' bill is they have this false narrative particularly from the UK that says, well, factor becomes rationed. 
Right. So you can't have it every other day if you need it. It's already or rationed. Somehow, and it's already rationed. I mean, there was by price. Exactly. And there was a time, too, when we were waiting for a new factory to be built that there was an actual shortage. And we did hoard it a little bit, you know, but now there's more people and there's I mean, there's more product in the industry because pharma realized, oh, if we do this little tweak, that little tweak that, you know, we could sell more products. We recently went to our annual dinner and we were talking about gene therapy. Now, Collins, you know, factor eight deficient, but factor nine has a gene therapy shot right now that's $3 million a shot. But it would, quote, cure you because it would give you the new gene to tell not the old genes how to work right, but any new genes how to actually make the clotting factor that you need. So when you start doing the benefit ratio on a $3 million shot, you're actually up for a lifetime, you know, sure. versus we used to cap out. I mean, the Affordable Care Act didn't come out of nowhere. The hemophilia community was huge on that. No lifetime cap, right? No pre-existing condition. You know, you get to stay with your parent until 26. Those were important factors for us so that we could get our kids educated, get them into an employer so that they could come off our insurance. So. You know, Obama signed that bill and drove to our friend's house who has hemophilia and took the picture. So, I mean, we were on that every day, but we said no idea that both parties would be so in bed with the insurance companies and all of our campaigns would be funded by insurance companies. So in the end, they win. And and it just goes on and on. They're just. They told me that in graduate school. Thank you. I, I appreciate it. They yeah. told me that in graduate school. Both parties are corrupt. I'm yeah. kidding. Oh, okay. But you know what? Yeah, yeah. 